Hello and welcome to this special classics podcast from Blackwell Online. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Cambridge Professor of Greek History and Fellow of Clare College, Paul Cartledge. I met Paul recently in the Fellows Library at Clare to talk to him about his latest book, Ancient Greece, A History in Eleven Cities, which, as the subtitle suggests, tells the story of ancient Greek civilization by focusing in turn on a sequence of cities, from the Knossos of prehistory via Sparta, Athens and Thebes, to Alexandria, and finally, the city that would one day become Istanbul. My first question for Paul was, why do ancient cities provide such a good way to explore the Greek world? It's a very good way to explore the Greek world because the Greeks themselves identified their civilization as a civilization of cities. And our own word civilization comes, of course, from the Latin. But there is a modern Greek word politismos, which means civilization or culture. And it is derived, it's a modern formation, it's a neologism within Greek, but from polis. Why? Because polis is the framework within which Greeks interact and of course originally politically but also culturally socially our culture tends to split politics off and put it in a pigeonhole and rather to derogate it whereas for them it was well for them for many of them and I mean many men and I mean citizens it was the the highest form of interaction and what do we mean by a city? Because if we think of a modern city, is that, that can be quite misleading. It's very misleading to imagine anything like uh, a modern city, with one exception, and that is the Piraeus of Athens. If you were to walk down from the Acropolis about eight kilometres, you'd come to the sea, you'd come to the port. And ancient Athens was really two cities, the old city around the Acropolis, and then this new city which grows up under the influence of imperialism, extra trade and um, naval power. So it's both a naval port and also a commercial port. Well, the housing there, so far as we can get a picture of it, was so dense. They had um, what the Romans called insulae, islands, and they called in a, a foreigner from Miletus on the other side of the Aegean, called Hippodamus. And he gave his name to a system of grid uh, arrangement of uh, urban planning. And he was called in to reduce this higgledy-piggledy new port to some sort of order. But otherwise, the ancient city was a city centre, that is, an urban centre, where the chief religious and political functions happened. But actual housing would be quite widely dispersed and very soon you'd be in the country and the Greek city as we call it a city was a combination of the urban center which might not be terribly urban and a much much larger countryside the Greek word chora and so um, we sometimes call this a city-state to get the point across that um, the Greek word polis, from which we get political, is actually not so much an urban phenomenon as a political phenomenon. You tell the, the story of ancient Greece through 11 different cities. How easy was it to select those? Are they almost self-selecting when you look at the chronology or was there a challenge in deciding which one should come where? There's an enormous challenge to choose out of about a thousand Greek cities and one factor is of course the survival of the evidence. So yes, to some degree the cities selected themselves, that is the ones who did the sorts of things that writers, artists, poets thought were worth talking about, writing about, painting and what have you. And then 
this is where the, the random factor comes in. Why did any later civilization decide that what the Greeks of the time were talking about was important to them too? So it, it's very useful for a city to have a continuous development over different periods and civilizations. And the two that stand out, that, that are inevitable from the early period, are Athens and Sparta. But I actually wanted to go back to what we typically call prehistory. So I wanted to go back to the time when the Greeks first learned to write Greek. And in some sense, that's really the first time you can say there are Greeks. And interestingly, Homer, who is our earliest source, he doesn't ever call them Greeks. They're Achaeans, Danaeans, or Argives. They're not called Greeks. And so it's actually quite quite a historical development for Greeks to become Greeks. They become Hellenes, as they call themselves. Well, after the prehistoric period, you get a sort of dark age, a sort of mushy um, proto-historical period. And then out of this fog emerge Athens and Sparta. And so you can't get away from them. Then there's a massive development, a diaspora, as we would call it today, whereby Greeks, for various reasons, fan out from the original Aegean heartland till they eventually are settled permanently everywhere from Spain in the far west to what's today Georgia in the east. And those regions, so you've got the west which comprises south of France and Spain, bits of Italy, Sicily, then the southern Mediterranean, you've got a bit of what's today Libya, and then you go further east and north and you get up into the Black Sea. Well, I wanted representatives of all those areas, but as I had to confess, there was one area which I was unable to find a city, um, partly because of my word limit, <laughs> which would fit in, and that's the Black Sea. And the Black Sea, if you look on a map, is enormous. I mean, it's not quite as big as the Mediterranean, but it's very, very big. And so there were Greeks settled pretty much all around that. And had I been able to fit one in, I would have fitted in the city that um, was called Olbia and is now where Odessa is, though actually Odessa, the name, was borrowed from a Greek city elsewhere around the Black Sea. But I wanted one that represented the far north of the Greek world, where the olive won't grow. I mean, it's quite extraordinary, but Greek civilization is identified um, quite significantly, both culturally and economically, with the growth of the olive tree and making of olive oil. Well, beyond a certain northerly latitude, the um, olive will not grow, and it won't grow in the Black Sea, oh. north of the Black Sea. On the other hand, the compensation is that this is the one of the major, one of the world's major wheat-growing lands. And so the Greeks sent olive oil north to their mates up there, and those mates sent back south wheat. So there was a symbiotic relationship. Well, it is a gap, and I regret it that there is no Black Sea city, but there is a western one, Marseille, Massalia. There are cities um, all around the rest of the Mediterranean, Syracuse in Sicily, for example, several in mainland Greece. And then there are two which are kind of outliers, and they represent different phases of Greek civilization. One is Alexandria in Egypt, which represents the time when, following Alexander the Great's conquest of the Persian Empire, Greeks spread even further than they had already. So 
even further east. They were living permanently in what's today Afghanistan and Pakistan. And they were living on three continents, not just Europe and Asia, but also Africa. And Alexandria, of course, has a continuous history through the Middle Ages, conquered by the Arabs, of course, and so through to the modern period where the combination of Greek, Jewish, Arab culture makes it a, still a fascinating city, the second biggest uh, in Egypt today, and famous in antiquity for its culture, for its high culture, for the library of Alexandria. And had that not been built, I could not have done uh, my entire uh, life's work as a scholar, because it's through Alexandria that the works were written, composed, preserved, that then were handed down through the Middle Ages to eventually the Renaissance, the age of printing, and so to us. The other city that's an outlier, that uh, straddles more than one culture, is what was originally Byzantium, which then becomes Constantinople, which then becomes, and actually I was quite surprised to discover, not till the 1930s, Istanbul. And there you get Greek and then uh, Byzantine Christian, then Muslim conquest, Ottoman, through to the slightly curious, secular, come religious, modern uh, Turkish state, where Istanbul is the kind of hinge uh, between East and West. So it was very, I ended with uh, Byzantium, because on the one hand it was founded early on in Greek history, but yet its continuity gives it a, a very nice place leading into our modern world. And I'm very interested in how we see the ancient world, how the ancient world impacts on us, but also how the modern world impacts on us scholars so that we see antiquity differently. Well, I mean, that ties into my next question, really, because it's clear that many of these cities not only have a history, but also are part of myth from the way in which they are founded or the heroes who might be associated with them. And so you've got that running in parallel, the sort of their sense of themselves or the later civilization's sense of what they meant. Yeah, well, Greek word myth, of course. So myth originally means just a story, but then it comes to be applied specifically to certain kinds of stories, and especially ones about the gods or about the heroes of the distant past. And that's where the foundation myth comes in. And each city uh, has um, its own foundation myth, some we know better than others. One I particularly like, it involves no um, supernatural phenomena, it's just um, humans, but it's the foundation myth of Marseille, Massalia, and there are two versions, slightly different names, same notion that Greeks come along, they found this settlement, and living there or nearby are, of course, non-Greeks, natives, um, Celts of the Ligurian um, branch of the Celtic um, people. And it's the sort of John Smith and Pocahontas scenario. In other words, the local chieftain offers his daughter to the leader of the incoming settlers. And the, the myth is that they, they get on terribly well and they have mutually interests in common so that the Celts get Greek wine, they get Greek olive oil, and in return the Greeks get access to uh, land, trading facilities, and women. And this was another thing that struck me very forcibly. I'd of course thought about it before. But whereas typically I think in colonization movements, uh, Spanish or um, North American in more recent times, 
typically women go out as well, maybe not initially, but uh, pretty soon after. Well, in the Greek case, it seems that very rarely did Greek women follow the men to go to settle all round the um, Mediterranean and Black Sea areas, and so therefore the Greeks had to find women from the locals. And there are actually one or two stories. There's a famous one about the women of Cyrene, which is another city I would love to have put in, in what's today Libya. The women there were so culturally different that even after their daughters and so on had become completely Hellenized, the women still would not eat with their husbands. So when men are having a party, then typically respectable women are not present. But when a man is simply having his evening meal, as it were, at home in Greece, it would typically be the case that his wife would eat with him. But never would the women of Cyrene sit down with their men because they had a memory, allegedly, that um, the first men had not treated the women terribly gently. In other words, it had been more a kind of rape and pillage rather than hello, my darling, and shall we settle down together, which I imagine is actually quite um, usual. I would imagine a kind of Viking scenario rather than a peaceful coexistence. And so foundation myth stories are a very interesting way of getting into what it was like for actually the majority of Greek settlements, because they, they are the majority are outside the, the old pale of settlement. Now, what about the relationship between the Greek city-states? Is it fair to see it as predominantly one of mutual antagonism and internecine strife? It is fair to see it predominantly as one of um, mutual antagonism, not necessarily outright hostility, but um, Plato, for example, imagines, as, as this is as late as the 4th century BC, when you would have imagined maybe they'd had time to sort of settle down and get on with each other, but uh, he treats war as the default situation. You know, peace is, is odd, uh, and he advocates it, and actually he speaks about um, within cities, um, Greeks being at war with each other. And of course, antagonism is a word of Greek derivation. Their word agon, which can mean a contest, which can be fairly peaceful, but it can also mean war, or it can mean a lawsuit. And the word derived from agon, agonia, means competitiveness, and it's from that that our word agony comes. So I mean, they are deeply competitive, which is one explanation, I think, of their extraordinary achievements, way beyond what would have been predicted, given their very low, by later standards, economic and technological base. Should we think of Athens as a case apart, or, or merely the sort of most perfect manifestation of, of what Greek civilization was? Athens is a case apart, and one reason for that is that it absorbed um, well over a hundred other um, villages. In other words, there's the city of Athens, which is where the Acropolis is, which is a whacking great rock and is an obviously attractive phenomenon, very suitable for defence. But the city-state of Athens, the polis or city-zen-state, encompassed over a hundred other settlements. And so to achieve a common identity, a common political structure within Athens, 
that I think is a bit of a clue to the fact that they're then able to go on and express themselves externally but they never got on well with their neighbours to the west Megara to the north the Boeotians and especially Thebes and there was a proverbial saying uh, an Attic neighbour that is an Athenian neighbour which means a bloody awful neighbour. In other words, Athenians were not comfortable people to live next to. And one of the things they did, some of those villages I mentioned, they actually uh, nicked from their neighbours. They brought them over and then incorporated them with the Athenian state, um, villages that were on the frontier. So Athens, on the one hand, is exceptionally large and diverse. And that, that's the first start. It then has these wonderful ports, which not every Greek city has, which it explores. It has pretty good economic base in agricultural terms in that it's very, very suitable for the growth of the olive. And olives not only can be consumed internally, but they're also a major export crop. Athens then, um, politically, now you couldn't have predicted this, went through all the stages that uh, other Greek uh, cities did. But, whereas most Greek cities ended up with some form of oligarchy, that is, a few citizens ruling, Athens, by various turns, unpredictably ended up with a form of democracy. Now, democracy can take different forms itself. Aristotle identified four different um, kinds of democracy, four different ways in which democratic government can be affected. And the Athenian way so happened to favour also the development of high culture. And I'll just give one example, and that is um, drama good Greek word, but first tragedy, then comedy, art forms that are clearly ancestral to what we understand by tragedy and comedy were developed in a thoroughly democratic way, in a democratic arena, the funding was arranged centrally, the purpose was to do good for the people, and the people judged. We mentioned competition. The plays were put on competitively, and it was ordinary Athenians who decided who won the prize for acting, for um, production, for um, the play as a whole. You mentioned Thebes, and I don't think I've ever told you this, but I spent a year as a teacher of English in Thebes. Wow. And um, one thing which your book um, reminded me is that <laughs> the, the modern city sits on top of the yes. ancient city. And so my question is, what kind of questions do you think, if one were able to remove the modern city, might be contained within the archaeological, archaeological yeah. treasure trove that is ancient Thebes? It's a very tough one because, of course, the Athenians, who were their nearest major neighbours, um, referred to them as Boeotian pigs. I mean, it's an old joke. But Pindar, famous um, lyric poet, uh, celebrating victories at the Great Games, especially the Olympics, was a Theban. And he actually refers in one of his poems to this slur. So, I mean, you might imagine that actually, as with Sparta, yes, Thebes has temples and so on so but it's not got a particularly distinguished visual art record and uh, it's produced a couple of great poets uh, Pindar one of them but um, the man that I'm most fond of that it produced is a guy called Epaminondas now what archaeologically what might one hope yes some more graves I mean it's an awful thing but archaeologists actually learn um, most about ancient life from studying um, people in death 
partly because of the grave goods, partly now because we analyse um, bones and so you can talk about diet and health and longevity and that sort of thing. But um, partly because um, the attitude to death tells you quite a lot about uh, people's attitude to life. And no Greek community was anything like um, the Egyptians. They simply did not have that fascination or awful preoccupation with life after death. They had a relatively um, untroubled or relatively light touch notion to what happened. Yes, there was a hell. Yes, it's better not to go to hell. But they're not constantly living with the thought of death uh, around them. So one would learn quite a lot about Theban um, everyday life from cemeteries, which we don't have. And about sanctuaries, I don't think we'd learn anything more than we already know from the ones around in the countryside. And what um, is very interesting about them is that they developed federal politics, whereas Athens is one city with lots of subordinate villages. The Thebans are a city, but they're part of a federation of Boeotian cities, which they, of course, dominated. They had the best land and they're the most aggressive or the most developed. And they developed within federalism, first a kind of oligarchy and then a kind of democracy. So they offer an alternative model to how Greeks get on with each other. Um, the normal model is antagonism and um, keeping apart, and yes, some imitation, some competitive emulation, but not much in the way of cooperation, whereas the Boeotians actually formed a unified federal state, which is an interesting phenomenon. You write in the conclusion, Paul, about the Greeks in many ways being alien and an exemplification of the other. And so I wanted, in conclusion, why you think it matters to, to study them in such detail and understand their civilization. Yes, I think that's a very good question. The problem for us is, I think, actually, the Victorians are other. So it's not that the Greeks are odd in that they're not us. But what's odd is that so much of our vocabulary, so much especially of our political vocabulary, so much of our everyday notion, theatre, drama, these are all Greek words and so on. So in other words, we, in one sense, tend to think of them as quite familiar. But then, if you put back in everything that's odd, in particular, to start with just two phenomena, religion and slavery, polytheism as opposed to monotheism, gods are everywhere, there are lots of different sorts of supernatural powers that it is worth worshipping in some sense. And yet within the framework that's so alien, they produce theatre, which is not so alien to our way of thinking. And it's that juxtaposition, that side-by-side um, -side, um, evolution that, that, that I find constantly puzzling. Slavery, well now many, many other cultures have had unfree people and slaves and so on. But what seems to be distinctive, and it's the other side of the evolution of a very autonomous, very empowered political person, that is the citizen, well the other side of it is the total disempowerment of a human being and the reduction of either men or women to the status of things. And apparently, so far as I'm aware, there had not been anywhere in the world before the Greeks in the 6th century BC this category of unperson, this depersonalized 
um, sort of unfree person. Lots of categories of unfreedom. Sparta has another one where they don't go to the step of creating a wholly owned um, chattel. So uh, <laughs> whether that's uh, admirable, I think it probably isn't, but it's actually part, it's a condition of the achievement of the other side of it, which is the uh, wholly independent, uh, fully formed independent uh, political person, the citizen. Paul Cartledge. His Ancient Greece, A History in Eleven Cities, is currently available in hardback. You can find out more about his book, and several million others, by going to blackwell.co.uk. Thank you for listening to this special classics podcast from Blackwells, and until next time, goodbye.